Welcome to We Need to Talk About Tech, where we talk about the past, present, and future of technology. On this week's episode of the podcast, we talked about the recent Galaxy Unpacked event. We talk about CES returning to in-person visitation in 2022. We talk about the Vegas Loop underneath the Las Vegas Convention Center that's opened up by The Boring Company. And we talk about Apple getting sued by the European Union for antitrust. Okay, on to topic number one. This past week, Samsung had another Galaxy Impact event. I guess this is what, their third for the year? This one was focused more around laptops. So they revealed a few devices, their Galaxy Book Pro, Galaxy Book Pro 360, their Galaxy Book, and then the Galaxy Book Odyssey. Uh, I guess, did you have a chance to see this event and see these new laptops? And what do you think of them? Yeah, so I definitely got a chance to see a little bit of the event and the different devices that they announced. It seems like the uh, main uh, the main focus, like you mentioned, was around the Galaxy Book, which is getting a little bit of a redesign as to what we've seen in the past year or so. Uh, what Samsung has been doing with those laptops. And it's interesting. It, it seems like they're taking a kind of a 180 approach onto what they were doing previously with the Galaxy Book Flex and the Galaxy Book Ion, which were very slim laptops and they were very aesthetically pleasing, to, in, in my opinion. Like the old devices, they were very squared off. Uh, you might have seen they came in different colors. The Windows versions kind of came in a blue or silver. Um, and then the Chromebook versions, the Galaxy Chromebook kind of came in like a red uh, or silver. And they were really, really cool looking devices, really thin, but they had a huge flaw across the board. And that was battery life. Battery life was really bad across the whole line. And they weren't reviewed particularly well. Um, you know, one of the cool things... Uh, about what the M1 Mac Mac has kind of done, and we're seeing this with Microsoft, they kind of put the pressure on in terms of battery efficiency and battery life. And now it seems like every company wants to kind of battle back on that front. We saw that recently with the Microsoft, the new Microsoft Surface uh, laptop, which they're starting to quote higher battery numbers before, and that that laptop was pretty good in battery even before that. But the Galaxy Unpacked event really focused on battery life and the the battery life between the new galaxy book line like you mentioned the odyssey the uh 360 and the pros is much much longer than the previous line and i think for a lot of people that's going to be really exciting and really cool it's coming with the new intel processors with the iris graphics so you're going to get much better graphics performance from the integrated chip that's in them um, and it's the new Intel processors. I believe we're up to the 11th gen now. So that's going to be uh, a huge selling point in terms of performance. Mostly on the graphics side is where you're going to see the big upgrade there. And then, like I mentioned, the battery life. The one thing I will say is I, I'm not the biggest fan of the design of these ones. I much prefer the design of the older ones. Um, but, you know, what they did do uh, with these, these new laptops is they, they got some good ports on there. Um, they're a little bit thicker than, than the older ones. So, you know, better port selection, better battery life. Even uh, the 360 version has uh, pen support, 
And so, yeah, they're, they're definitely trying to cover the gamut of making it the most practical device. And the price is a little bit lower, which is interesting. Um, so, yeah, it seems like, like this might be Samsung's way of trying to compete heavier with Apple um, by bringing out these new, these new machines. But um, I'm still a big fan of what the older ones were, which um, I've, I've, upon looking on Samsung's website, it seems like they're not selling those ones anymore. They're kind of doing a full replacement of, of those old ones with these new ones. And I think for most people, that would probably be a good thing because battery life and ports is more important. But yeah, I'm definitely, it's, it's, I'm a little sad that they couldn't find a way to bring this, this new uh, idea of of battery life and and more flexibility in that kind of same design as the old ones, but uh, I imagine it it just came down to it needed to be a thicker device. It needed to to accommodate more stuff inside of it than the old ones did. So yeah, it's it's a weird situation. I'm like kind of really happy about it, but then on the other side, I'm kind of sad to see the old ones go. Um, but how about you? Uh, do these machines kind of interest you at all? Like do you. I don't really know anyone who's ever purchased a Samsung laptop, but I do think they're gaining in popularity. Uh, do these ones that they just announced do anything for you? Um, not really, like to be honest. And I don't, I can't say I know anyone that's bought a Samsung laptop either. Mm-hmm. I do kind of like the the different tiers that they've kind of, they've sectioned out, right? They have, or they've announced their just Galaxy Book, which is the more accessible version of their laptop. They have the Galaxy Book Pro and then the Galaxy Book Pro 360, which are kind of like, they seem like direct competitors for the MacBook Pro. And then they have the Galaxy Odyssey, which is their gamer-focused laptop. And they took Odyssey from their Odyssey game and monitors also, right? They have a pretty successful game and monitor uh, brand. And Odyssey, because Samsung makes amazing screens, they always have. Other phone companies will use Samsung screens in their phones, right? So I think it's smart that they're using that successful branding of Odyssey on their their high-end laptop. I think probably out of these four laptops, kind of the most popular ones will probably be the Galaxy Book, just because it's going to be that much more accessible to people. And then the Galaxy Book Odyssey, just because, like I said, the Odyssey is a a somewhat successful name. And the fact that they went with Pro, right? Galaxy Book Pro, it's it's obviously obviously targeted at the MacBook Pro buyer. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, someone who's trying to decide between that and maybe a Windows laptop. And the pricing, which you mentioned, right? They've kind of brought all of these in line with Apple products. Other than the, the the more accessible Galaxy Book, these are all pretty much, you know, punch for punch the same price as a comparable MacBook. So I think it's it's not by accident for sure. It's they're trying to pull some of that that market share away from Apple. And I'm really interested to see how it turns out. Like I said, I think it's gonna be the lower end and the higher end that that if anything are going to attract people, right? When you talk about gaming laptops, right? What really matters is performance. So what you're going to have to see is you're going to see 
people playing Cyberpunk 2077 on it. They're going to have to be playing Shadow of the Tomb Raider. They're going to have to, they're going to be people showing, okay, this is a great gaming laptop. You can run Overwatch at 60 frames per second, no problem. And that's going to get people's attention, right? Especially if you're looking at, okay, this versus a MacBook. You can't do any of that on a MacBook. Yeah. Right? Like you can't game it all on a MacBook. So if you're comparing this to anything, it's going to be other Windows laptops, other Windows gaming laptops. And if this is competitive in terms of its performance and it's even more competitive in terms of its price, I see this Galaxy Book Odyssey doing really well for them. Yeah. And and, uh, I'm glad you brought that up because I think screens are a huge part of what makes these laptops a, a little bit special is because some of the Galaxy Book line has the uh, OLED uh, displays, which, you know, we it's been very kind of rare to see those in the laptop market. Dell has some laptops with um, OLED screens, um, but really most of the laptop market is stuck to LCDs. So, you know, as some of these laptops are coming out with Samsung's kind of patented OLED uh, screens that people have really gravitated to, like you mentioned, in phones, it's kind of cool to see if that will move the needle a little bit in the laptop space. And in terms of the Odyssey um, laptop, which isn't using uh, an OLED screen, but a typical LCD, I think they kind of maybe um, missed the the boat a little bit on that product. Because one of the most popular, like you mentioned, one of the most popular things that Samsung makes is the Odyssey uh, G series of of displays, monitors. And one of the most popular ones is their super ultra wide one that, you know, is, is, has this huge screen, this huge ultra wide screen. And I imagine they probably could have brought a little bit of that flair in the, the laptop space. I don't know how necessarily how useful that is, but I think the Odyssey laptop was supposed to be kind of like the, the big surprise at this event. Um, but I think it's a little bit cookie cutter compared to the the Galaxy Book, um, the other Galaxy Book products that they brought out, and even the Galaxy Book products before, it looks a little boring, um, and it only has a uh, RTX 3050 or 3050 Ti, um, so not necessarily the most powerful graphics chip on board. So you know, it, it it that product which was probably going to excite a lot of gamers who are looking to to get something a laptop that, like you mentioned, isn't even available uh, in Apple's kind of ecosystem, I think they might feel a little bit let down by that product. But I I do agree with you. I think the other ones, um, especially the base and the Pro, are going to be a huge, uh, or probably the most popular, like you mentioned, for Samsung. And I definitely think, you know, their their play of putting S Pens on almost everything is going to be really cool. And I kind of hope they continue to do that going forward. Definitely. Uh, any closing statements? Uh, no, I, I'm actually interested to see if they also bring this line to Chromebooks. We've seen that Chromebooks have been getting very, very popular recently. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see if Samsung, they recently just released their Chromebook 2, um, their Galaxy Chromebook 2, but that has the old design, which I said I, I prefer. But I'm, I'm interested to see if they bring this new kind of design aesthetic to the Chromebook as well um, going forward. Yeah, I mean, there's going to be a lot of interesting things to come from Samsung, right? And the the rest of this year, maybe even into next year, uh, 
some of those things we might even see at CES in 2022. Yes. Uh, next year, it has been announced, CES 2022 is going to be in person again. What is the world's biggest tech conference, which some people would even say is their own version of Christmas. Yes. The Consumer Electronics Show, an in-person event in Las Vegas, January 5th to 8th, 2022. Uh, how do you feel about this? Uh, so I'm a little mixed on this because I'm, I definitely love CES. CES is the second Christmas. It's that event that I'm always so excited for every year. Um, the moment January hits, I'm like, oh, CES is coming up. I can't wait. Uh, but I, it's, it's kind of surprising to think that they are thinking that they'll probably be able to do a, an in-person event in 2022. I don't know if that's necessarily realistic at this point, but I do understand why they're trying to plan for that. The 2020 version of CES or 2021 version of CES was very, very different. And obviously like everything in, in, in that, in this past year has been very, very different. But, you know, for, like you said, the largest, not just consumer electronics event, but just event in general, taking over Las Vegas completely over that short period of time, it's one of those things where you didn't get the same kind of effect from CES. You didn't get the big players showing up and showing off their newest products and, you know, trying to entice vendors of, of, of purchasing these, uh, these cool new, new things. So I imagine CES wants very much to go back to that, that big spectacle that they were before. I think one thing that they're doing that is very smart, because like I said, I do not think, as of right now, I don't think it's going to be possible for this to happen. And I know Mobile World Congress in Barcelona is currently planned for June as an in-person event as well. And I definitely don't think that's going to happen, but they are still going ahead with the idea that it is going to happen in person. Um, but I think one thing smart that they are doing is that they're planning this event both digitally and in person at the same time. So I, get, I guess it gives them the ability to be flexible for not just whether or not the event does get to go on, go ahead in person, but for vendors who maybe don't want to travel or can't travel um, to still be able to have a digital showing. And, and not just exhibitors, but also uh, viewers or, or what's the word I'm looking for? Retailers, like all the people who would normally purchase items from CES or, or, you know, get advertised these items so that they can purchase them for their mm -hmm. companies or for their organizations. For them to visit CES in a digital sense as well. I think that's really important for them to do that simultaneously so that they can be flexible for whatever kind of situation gets thrown at them come January of 2022. Um, but yeah, it, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with CES. Do you think it's going to happen? I, I don't know. It's, it's so hard to, to tell. Um, I think it could happen. I mean, Las Vegas, January next year, um, just the way things are kind of rolling out in the States, I think they'll be able to pull it off. But like you said, you know, they are kind of, they're already planning for it to be a hybrid kind of thing, right? They're not planning for everything to be in person. They are planning for some sort of digital aspect to it also. And even that being said, you know, in July of 2020, they'd already decided that, okay, 2021 going to be digital. 
but the following year is going to be in person. So this is kind of, they're just really echoing what they decided in 2020. Yeah. And, you know, because they are planning for some of it to be digital, it makes sense that they would be planning to, okay, depending on how things are in Las Vegas in January, we may have to switch it to instead of part of it being digital, it's all digital again. And I think just, you know, part of trying to run an event like this is you have to, you want to build up hype for it, right? You know, every year there is going to be hype because it's, it's the, the newest technology or cars or just the newest stuff that you're going to be able to see or some things you're going to see for the first time. So I think they need to build up attention and excitement for it as it is, even if, you know, by the end of the year, they've already decided, OK, you know, we're just going to be all digital, just the way things are looking in the world and in Las Vegas. But just as people who are trying to organize the event, they have to, you know, build up attention for it. I think that's part of what's also going on, too, especially since they've already decided, you know, in July of last year that it's going to be in person. I think if they if they were to say right now, that OK, yeah, no, we're not we're going to cancel it. Again, I feel like that would be too soon and that would kind of, you know, cause people to check out way too early. Yeah. Yeah. And this is uh, an event that has tens of thousands to close to hundreds of thousands of people showing up in Las Vegas year over year from all around the world. So it is a difficult thing to kind of coordinate, especially with that amount of people and, you know, thousands of companies exhibiting as well. So, yeah, it's, it's a difficult thing to plan. So. You're 100% right. Being flexible is, is going to be important in this case. So, since it's going to be in person as of right now, are you uh, enticed to buy a ticket for it? Uh, <laughs> as of right now, no. Um, but who knows? Maybe one day. Maybe one day uh, the podcast will, will show up and see us to do some reporting. Yeah. <laughs> Um, there is, you know, like you said, there's a lot of people there, right? It's Las Vegas convention center is one of the largest convention centers in the United States. I'm pretty sure mm -hmm. it's full of tens of thousands of people. It's a lot of traffic, a lot of foot traffic, a lot of car traffic. I've heard quotes that what would normally take like 10 minutes to walk from one side of the campus to the other takes up to an hour, hour and a half, just because of how busy everything is and how many people there are. Um, possibly for July 2022, when this is in person, you will be able to, instead of, you know, taking a taxi cab somewhere or an Uber or, you know, walking across the campus, you could take the Vegas Loop, which was built by Elon Musk and the Bourne Company. Would you like to elaborate on this new breakthrough in transportation? Yeah. So this is an interesting one. Um, you know, okay. So this is by the Bourne Company. The Bourne Company was first pitched as this idea of building this very fast tunnel um, from Los Angeles to San Francisco where people could travel to and from those two cities in a very short period of time. Now, one of the big contracts that they won was uh, this contract with Las Vegas and specifically the Las Vegas Convention Center for a about a $52 million deal 
where they would build these tunnels under the Las Vegas Convention Center and have uh, autonomous vehicles transporting people from one end to the other underground so that it could alleviate a lot of the traffic from these tens of thousands of people who are overground trying to transfer from one end of the convention center to the other. And then also with CES, what makes it such a problem is that it goes beyond just the Las Vegas Convention Center. So, you know, there's hotels and all the stuff in the area that you need to travel between. So, you know, they got this contract to build these tunnels and, you know, there was this fantastic marketing of like these cool bus-like vehicles where people would pack into them and, you know, uh, get the chance to to travel very quickly um, between these these areas. And they just recently gave journalists a first look at the Vegas loop, quote unquote. And for the most part, uh, journalists were very unimpressed with what was shown. Essentially, uh, what they got to see were a couple of tunnels with some really cool LED lights and some Tesla Model 3s driving at 35 miles per hour in these tunnels, transporting three passengers and one driver uh, at a time. And that was a far cry from the original kind of pitch that was given uh, to this kind of situation. And I think that's what kind of caught a lot of people off guard. Because honestly, I will say, I do think the fact that these tunnels were built and, you know, they have really cool LED lights. I do think there's a little bit of a cool factor to this. But the big problem is the promise that was made of what this was going to be like. And the reality are night and day. They're, they're nothing alike. And I think that was a, a huge kind of shock factor for a lot of people when they saw it for the first time. Of like, this is not what we thought it was. It's not autonomous. It's not fast. It's, it's you know, but... The, the idea is that they will be able to move up just under 4,500 people per hour um, in this loop, hopefully by time CES opens up, which I don't know how they're going to do that. Uh, but as of right now, it, it, I do agree with a lot of the journalists. It is quite unimpressive. Yeah. I mean, speaking of expectations, so I think what was the plan was for them to transport 4,400 people per hour. Uh, I watched a pretty interesting video from Engadget on it, and they kind of did the math with, like you said, three passengers, one driver. I think at the time there's maybe like six cars running through the loop, mm -hmm. and that meant that they could transport 576 people per hour, which is of very far off from 4,400. And it's, I think a lot of it is a cool factor. Right. Anytime you talk about Elon Musk or Tesla or SpaceX or the Boring Company, it is this cool factor. There's this cool factor behind it. Right. I know when they were decided on whether or not to give this contract to the Boring Company and Elon Musk, there was talks of, hey, we have this pretty efficient monorail system that runs. Why not just put this money towards it? And, you know, sort of extend it to where we need it to be. And that was, you know, lobbied against by certain people. And the money was given to Elon Musk instead. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure part of it was just because you could be the people that said, hey, we had the first underground loop built by the Boring Company. 
right? This was the inaugural tunnel of the Boring Company that actually transported people from an airport to a convention center, to hotels. But like you said, and like the journalist said, right, it's not really living up to expectations. Now, there's still quite a bit of time, right? We have until January. We're in May right now. So hopefully by the time January comes around and this event actually does end up happening, it is a bit more built out. Hopefully there are autonomous vehicles. Hopefully there are bigger vehicles because, you know, from the videos and the articles that you see, it's not very big. It's it's barely fit in the Tesla Model 3, right? And even if you think, okay, maybe if it's a little bit bigger, you get a Model X in there. Then that's what two more passengers you can add. Even that would make so much of a difference without it being autonomous. But, you know, Elon is definitely the cool factor guy. He's the the Tony Stark of our generation. So hopefully it does turn out to be everything that he promised it to be, or at least, you know, half of what it promised (laughs) to be. Definitely can't can't operate with 576 people being transported per hour. But, you know, I'm looking forward to see what comes from that. Well, and there's a couple of things that I do think, like I want to give credit for what I do think is kind of cool. I think the LED lights, the LED lights 100%. Also, <laughs> also the fact that within the Las Vegas uh, Convention Center kind of area that's built out right now, people who are using this will be able to use it free of charge. So it isn't going to be something that's that's necessarily charged for, which is going to help if they can get to 4,400 people per hour. It's going to help tremendously with traffic in an area that needs that help, right? Um, so definitely that is a cool factor, but you're 100% right. Right now, the limiting factor is, one, these tunnels are very narrow. Um, you know, the Tesla Model 3 is not a big car. It's a pretty small car. And it's just fitting that right now. Like it's, it's very tight. So the idea that the vehicle definitely needs to change. It does need a bigger vehicle that can accommodate more people. And how big can you really go in a tunnel that narrow? So I think those are going to be huge limiting factors. But I think if they can get autonomy working correctly and they can get a vehicle that can maybe get six passengers on board at a time, I think they can get closer to hitting that number. And I think that's an easy fix, hopefully, for the boring company and for Elon is, you know, this is a pretty straight path to get autonomy working in that scenario should be pretty easy, hopefully. I'm not an engineer. I don't know. I'm just guessing. But if they can and they can get maybe a bigger vehicle either built by Tesla or even someone else, we've seen really cool EV, autonomous focused EVs coming from a lot of cool companies recently. Um, that are built for passenger uh, carrying that Tesla really isn't doing right now. So maybe go to one of your competitors and buy some of their vehicles and get them down there because as of right now, 100%, this isn't very impressive. But getting a better vehicle for this scenario would be a huge change in the right direction. It would be. And I think this is really just uh, you know proof of concept. Mm. right? They're showing that, hey, we can build a tunnel or we can build a series of tunnels under Las Vegas and have our vehicles moving through them. And then, you know, the next step is to okay, have maybe a different vehicle or build a slightly bigger tunnel. And yeah, I think this is 
I mean, this is just the first step. Uh, we'll just see how long it takes for those next few steps to come. Yeah. Recently, the European Union, via the European Commission, accused Apple of forcing apps and other developers into the Apple in-app payment system. Um, pretty much what they're saying is the same thing that Congress in the States has been saying, the same thing that Epic has been saying. It's that, you know, Apple has this unfair advantage in that they built an ecosystem and they're determining, okay, which apps are allowed in it, which apps can charge money for it, how much they can charge. And obviously Apple has to take their cut of it. Now, this isn't the start of the case or it originally started last year, right? The European Union, Union kind of said, hey, we're looking into Apple. We're looking into these antitrust, anti-competitive lawsuits against them. We are going to formally accuse them, file something against them. And this is kind of, this is that point. They've done their research. They've done their due diligence. And now they have formally launched the case, I guess, against Apple. I think this is more specifically around Spotify, but just around Apple and their app ecosystem in general. So my question to you is, how do you feel about this kind of this first big step by the European Union? And what do you think? Yeah, so this is a really interesting one because we talked about almost this exact same scenario really early on in the podcast with Epic Games. I think this was a, kind of the main topic of some of our bonus episodes. Um, but yeah, this was a, a issue that was brought up by Spotify, which is a Europe-based company. Um, and their main issue was very similar to Epic's where they felt that because Apple imposed this 30% charge from any purchase that was done through the App Store, and restricted any app's ability to advertise that customers could get a better price elsewhere. Uh, it gave Apple an unfair advantage for their own Apple Music platform because they own the App Store. They own the ability to police the App Store, but they don't necessarily have to follow those same rules for their own apps. I mean, I don't necessarily know how this works, but I'm pretty sure Apple isn't paying themselves, and if they were, it didn't really matter. 30% for their own music service. So essentially, if you say you want to exist on the App Store, you got to give us 30% and you can't tell your customers that they can get a cheaper price anywhere else, Apple is essentially saying you have to be 30% more expensive than we are. Um, and, you know, I think there's, there's two varying approaches here from Apple and from a lot of the competitions. And I'll go over a couple of quotes here. One from, from Apple um, is they said at the core of this case is Spotify's demand that they should be able to advertise alternative deals on their iOS app, a practice that no store in the world allows, which is a good point. No other store would allow you to, let's say, for example, if you went to Walmart, they're not going to have a product on the shelf that says, hey, you can get this cheaper at Target. Um, that just wouldn't happen. But I think where Apple is a little bit incorrect here is that if you do go to Walmart, you have the ability to go to another store. On iOS, there is no ability to go on another to another store, which is what gives them that advantage. And what the EU Commission mentioned here is, and I think this is a great quote of what the big problem is, 
is they said an app store can become a gatekeeper, in particular if they are the only app, the only one app in the store available in a mobile ecosystem. So it's not a situation where Apple has the ability or any Spotify has the ability to say, okay, fine, we'll take our business elsewhere. Because on iOS, that's just not possible. And we saw this very um, clearly in the case with Epic and Apple and Google, where Google's, you know, did the same thing as Apple and removed Fortnite from, from the app store. But then Epic allows, there's the ability to install the app from the internet or even from the Samsung store. So there's other options. When it comes to Apple, there is no other option, which gives them the kind of added ominous look around them where if they say, we're going to make you abide by our rules and there's no other alternative. So I definitely think that this is kind of a, a really damning kind of situation for Apple because they're fighting the same battle across you know, multiple countries. And in this case in particular, they could potentially face a fine as large as $27 billion if, you know, uh, Apple is found to be anti-competitive in this situation. So this is not a small amount of money. And this can also be, like you mentioned, this is something that's happening all over the place. This can also be a huge, like, linchpin for what Apple is doing to a lot of their competition um, in the App Store. And I, I don't know how this is going to turn out. I mean, Apple has a lot of money and some, I'm sure, fantastic lawyers. Um, so I imagine they're going to fight tooth and nail to make sure that they keep their advantage. But if I'm being honest, this is something that I would love to see uh, go against Apple. And not just because this is a situation where it's hurting you know, a lot of, of competition on iOS, but also because I do think there is a problem with an ecosystem that has one store. And I hope the ultimate, uh, like you mentioned, like what is what do I think the outcome is? I think the, I hope the ultimate outcome is that there is the ability for competition on iOS in the App Store market other than Apple. I hope there is the ability that forces Apple to say, hey, you can't be the only person on this platform. And I think if Apple was a smaller company, if they sold less iPhones, they could argue against that fact. But because iPhones are the most popular phone in the world, there is really no other ecosystem on that scale that is limited to just one player, despite who makes it. Microsoft isn't like this. You know, Google isn't like this. No one else has this ability. So yeah, I definitely hope that this is a situation that goes against Apple and kind of opens up the ecosystem a bit more. But I don't know. That's just my opinion. I'm not someone who uses a lot of Apple products, so I could be, you know, a little bit misguided or, or wrong on this approach. But um, how about you? How do you feel about this as someone who uses iPhones? I definitely say that it is an unfair practice, right? I think even, like you mentioned, our bonus podcast episodes, right, we were really focusing on the battle between Epic and Fortnite and what it kind of meant for the larger Apple ecosystem, in itself, it's anti-competitive and there, like you said, there is no real, there's nothing like this anywhere else, right? Because Apple is, okay, we make the phones so we get to decide what is installed on the phones and how it is installed on the phones and there's no competition, 
right? Like you said, you can't say, okay, well, you want to charge us 30%. So us being Spotify, we're going to take our app to some other app store, right? We're going to take us ourselves to some other download or some other installer. You can only get apps on your phone one way or on your iPad one way. And that's kind of where this whole, this argument is around. When we, we were talking about Fortnite, right? We were saying, okay, there are, let's say added costs. If you pay $10 in the game, it's not like Fortnite is getting that $10. Apple is taking their $3 out of it. So then Fortnite charges you $3 more. So it's okay. $13 on an Apple device and it's $10 on, let's say a PlayStation device, right? That hurts the consumer. That's the only person that ends up hurting, mm-hmm. right? I, they have sided with Spotify. I think they will be able to, I guess, find Apple guilty in this. But like you said, Apple has very deep pockets and they probably have very good lawyers. So I'm sure they'll find some way to settle for much less than the $27 billion, much less than 10% of global revenue. Um, I think it's going to be something where they are found guilty Maybe things will change, but most likely not. And they'll pay a small fine because I could see Apple very much saying, "Okay, hey, you find our practices are uncompetitive. You don't have to be on our devices then. Right. I'm sure they'll also go that route, too, because their argument could be, hey, if you don't like us that much, don't do business with us. It's okay. We're fine not having your stuff on our on our devices, which once again would just be a loss for consumers. Yeah. So I, I, I also hope that the app ecosystem changes. I hope that even if you look at in terms of how it affects developers, right? If you are a small developer and you're being charged 30%, that 30% is a big deal for you. Now, if you're someone the size of Epic, you know, someone the size of Fortnite, 30%, yeah, is a is a lot of money, but you can still function very well on the rest of that 70%. And if you're a small developer trying to build an app or a game, right, your resources are so much smaller compared to bigger developers that that extra 30% means you can make a better app for people, right? So if it's, Okay, Apple gets their their big piece of the pie or we get better apps. I'm going to say we get better apps all day long, right? As a consumer, I want the best product that a company can come up with. And if that's limited by, well, Apple feels they deserve more money, well, then no, give it to the developer, right? But I, I don't see it changing. And I really... I'm interested to see where this this uh case goes and all these cases go right because a similar thing is happening in the in the united states right now but to be honest maybe i'm just a bit of a pessimist around this i see apple just getting a stronger and stronger ecosystem like we mentioned last podcast right they were releasing air tags and then Tile, the tracker company, was in such a big uproar as to, oh, this is unfair and uncompetitive and anti-competitive and they have a monopoly. But Apple is just coming out with more and more things. 
right? They're getting people more and more locked into the ecosystem. And like we mentioned in our last podcast, I think it was about cloud gaming, right? If you're someone who has an iPhone, you're not going to say, oh, well, I can't play Xbox games, so I'm not going to get an iPhone. I'm going to get an Android device. Chances are, if you have an iPhone, you have five other devices, let's say, in the Apple ecosystem, and you're not going to switch. So if it's, hey, I can't get Spotify, I'll just use Apple Music, which is just bolstering Apple's, their stake even more. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't see this really changing much. Hopefully it does. Hopefully I'm just an unnecessarily pessimistic person in this case, but I I don't know. I'm not sure where this will go. Yeah, honestly, I think you're right. I think, at least from what we've seen in history, I don't think this is going to show much of a change in, in how Apple operates, other than maybe losing a, a few billion dollars or maybe a few hundred million dollars, depending on how much they decide to settle for. Because this is a situation where Apple is going to weigh what do they have, what do they think is more valuable? The couple billion dollars that they might decide to settle with or their exclusivity of app of the app store on their platform. And I think at the end of the day, that app, that app platform exclusivity is far more valuable to them. And I don't think they want any kind of, any kind of person trying to poke at that. And this is one thing that we mentioned in the last podcast is like, they have this hold that they never really want to let go. And I kind of hope that it, these companies kind of come together to poke holes at what Apple has been doing is the idea of it's very similar to what a lot of people have been complaining about Amazon doing. You mentioned, you know, the Apple ecosystem is only getting bigger and bigger. And there's another thing that's also getting bigger and bigger, and that's Amazon Basics. There used to be a time when Amazon Basics was just very simple stuff. But recently, there's been a huge trend of the most popular products on Amazon sold by third parties, all of a sudden get an Amazon basic version of it that's cheaper and undercutting it. And I think this is exactly what Apple is doing on a digital end. They see a company like Spotify being hugely successful. They can see all those numbers. They have all those stats. They own the app store. They can then say, we can make this exact same thing and undercut them because we don't have to worry about that 30%. So they do. And in less than half the time that Spotify has existed, they can get nearly half the amount of subscribers that Spotify has because of that. And same thing with, with Tile and, and, and AirTags. Jeez, I almost forgot the name. Um, <laughs> they can see, oh, hey, Tile is doing this. This is really cool. Let's see how their app ecosystem works and stuff like that. We can take that information, make our own, and undercut them. And I think this is just the reality of what Apple is doing. And a lot of people on the App Store have been talking about this, of like how restrictive Apple is with the App Store and how many times they will make something directly competing with, with uh, an app that someone made simply to push them out. Or, you know, someone makes an app and, app and Apple will just decline that app for no real reason and then subsequently make their own version of that app a month later. Like this is a situation, like a practice that is very anti-competitive, but has gone unchecked for a very, very, very long time. And I do agree with you. As bleak as this as this is to me personally, I think that the kind of hold that Apple has with iOS is unacceptable. But 
The reality is they do have very deep pockets. They have really good lawyers. They're probably going to settle. And at the end of the day, they're going to lose a few few million dollars or billion dollars and nothing's going to change. As what happens with Google anytime they get in a situation like this, or Microsoft or anyone else. But overall, I don't think anything is ever going to change until there's real pressure from multiple people at the same time saying, we need another platform for apps on iOS, which I just don't think Apple will ever let happen, uh, no matter what. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, we are kind of at a time where that's happening, right? If you look at Spotify, you look at Tile, you look at Epic Games, there are kind of multiple attacks, let's say, on the, the Apple castle, you know, on the Apple kingdom. So I don't think... This is definitely not the start of attacks on Apple's castle. Mm-hmm. I don't think this is the necessary this is necessarily the end of it, but if all these different cases keep on coming up, right, we could be looking at a time where things have to be become more diversified. You know, Congress is still figuring out what they want to do with these different tech giants, right? We mentioned Apple, mentioned Amazon, Google, uh Facebook, right? There is still, you know, legislation that is that it's going to be happening around that. So I don't know, maybe a month, maybe a year from now, we'll be able to say, hey, you know, maybe we were unnecessarily pessimistic. Maybe we were saying, hey, Apple's never going to change. They're just going to get stronger and bigger. But through things like this recent European Union case, Let's say, let's say, you know, the Epic case, let's say the tile case, let's say the XYZ, whatever else pops up, right? This could be, maybe there is another app installer. Maybe there's some law passed where every, I don't know, platform, every operating system has to have more than one way to install apps. Because as we, as we've said before, right, the... Mac products are now becoming more and more merged into one thing. With the recent iMac, right? They were with the M1 chip. You can run all iOS devices on your MacBook. So it's just like an iPhone. And now that the M1 chip is in the iPad Pro, that's even more melding of the, the different Apple things together. So how long until, okay, there's just one app store. And now on your Mac devices, on your MacBooks, on your iMacs, on your, you know, uh, Mac minis, you can only install from the Apple app store. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, we could, we're going one of two ways, right? Either Apple is allowed to become more kind of locked off and consolidate more power with themselves, or maybe things start opening up. And I kind of, I hope it's going towards the starting to open up direction, but we shall see. Yeah. Well, I will say this, and this is probably something a lot of iOS users probably haven't experienced, but if things do ever open up, for people who love Apple the way that it is now, it might seem like a negative, but overall, I would have to say it's going to be a huge positive. If you are someone who uses an iPhone and you think, oh, I only want the App Store because it's the only thing I trust, um, and if you know another App Store comes on and they could potentially install viruses on my phone, yeah, I understand that fear. But from someone who uses a PC, and you know, we've talked about Epic Games. Epic Games was very serious about lowering 
the fees that get charged to game developers in terms of how much is charged for games that are sold on PC. Prior to them creating their own store, Steam was the go-to. There was always the ability for other people to come in and kind of disrupt that market. Uh, CD Projekt tried to with, with good old games, but no one could really capture that. And at that point, developers were giving 30% of their income to Steam um, just for the privilege of selling games to, to consumers. When Epic came in, they came in with the premise that developers are going to get 88% of their revenue. We're going to take 12%. And that was a huge shift, and a lot of people didn't like it at first. But the fact is, developers who are making these games and have salaries and all these people they need to support, that's a huge difference. That's a big change for them in terms of the revenue that they're making. And they they embrace that market. And the Epic Game Store is, despite a lot of people's apprehensions at first, very successful. And the movement they started is very successful because just recently, Microsoft announced that in their upcoming Xbox Store, or Microsoft Game Store on PC, they are also only going to charge or take 12%, and 88% is going to go to developers. So this is kind of like a trickle-down situation of once the competition is allowed to exist, the people who are already ingrained in the system, like a Microsoft or like a Steam, have to follow suit. Because at the end of the day, developers are going to go where they can get the best bang for their buck. And... Despite what it may be seen as of, of Apple creating the App Store, the only reason the App Store exists with the brand recognition that it has today is because of developers and because of the apps that these developers make. So this idea that Apple is the reason as to why this is successful, I think, is a narrative that they try to push that's that's incorrect. And I do think that if there is the ability for another person or another uh, App Store to exist, you'll start to see the developers go to that app store where they can be more competitive and you'll still see the high quality apps on those app stores because it's not about Apple. It's about the developers who make those apps. And like you said, I'm doubtful like you, but I'm hoping that we get to see that change going forward. Yeah. All right. It's the end of our hope podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Take it easy. Everyone in podcast, man. Catch you in the next episode.